Good morning, my name is Jim Pearsall, and my father was Adrian Pearsall, a mid-century furniture designer, and you are watching A Student's Perspective. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to A Student's Perspective, the weekly series that connects students with designers, manufacturers, educators, industry professionals, and design media celebrities to hear their stories on just how they've gotten to where they are now. Through our conversations, we connect the past, present, and future of design to show just how much we can learn from each other to grow towards our fullest potential without prescribed limitations. Think of a student's perspective as a weekly design lecture series from the student's point of view. A Student's Perspective is a division of the nonprofit University Hall of Innovation, whose goals are to connect students with the design industry through design challenges and mentorship and a collaboration with the Marywood University Interior Architecture Program in Scranton, Pennsylvania. All interviews can be found in their video format at www.astudentsperspective.tv. For more information or sponsorship inquiries, please contact universityhalloofinnovation at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Bianca Bancari, and today we're here with Jim Pearsall. And um, if you guys like this conversation, just give it a like, comment, and share. Um, so Jim, thank you so much for coming in today. <laughs> um, so I guess we could just start off with um, maybe a brief little background about your father, Adrian, um, and just a little bit about his career path, maybe, how it, how it got him to where he was. Well, uh, let's see. He, at, towards the end of World War II, he decided to enlist in the Navy. And when he got out of the Navy, he had um, a scholarship uh, that a lot of GIs had and elected to go to the University of Illinois, um, not really knowing what he would do there. Um, but he tested well from the architecture school, and so they invited him to join their school. And um, that's how he got started. And after he graduated, he, uh, he was from Ithaca, New York. He um, was traveling. He had some reserve work left to do with the Navy. He was traveling to New York City and sat on a train from Ithaca to New York and sat next to a woman who turned out later to be my mother. <laughs> and he uh, got a job. Uh, at a, a firm in, in Wilkesbury called Lacey Atherton and Davis as a draftsman um, shortly after he married her. And that was great. You know, he had a job at least. And uh, but he wasn't particularly happy there after a year. It was a family um, owned firm. There wasn't a lot of room for advancement. He really wanted to own his own business. And my mom's uh, brothers and sisters had enjoyed some of the uh, furniture he had made just for them and said, you know, you really ought to go into business for yourself. And he said, I have no money and I have to work. And they said, quit your job. We'll, we'll help you. And here's a loan and start making furniture. And that's, that's really how it started. And it grew from there. I and mean, he was making furniture in the basement of a duplex. Oh, wow. <laughs> Kingston, Pennsylvania is. And, uh, after he got a few pieces together, he loaded them onto a trailer and started taking them to the department stores down in Philadelphia, like Wanamaker's and, and a few others. And uh, that was the beginning. 
That's so amazing. Um, and then, so we did a little bit of um, a little bit of research online, and we saw that um, there were two companies um, that he had a lot of success in. Um, and I, I know that it started with Crafts Associates, right. and that was a huge part of um, Wilkes-Barre in general. I think from the fifties to the sixties, it was one of the top employers of Wilkes-Barre. It was the top employer at, at one time. They had more employees than any other company in Pennsylvania. Wow. 16 or 1800 employees, three shifts, 24 hours a day. Um, and that he had, um, he had a small factory when he first started somewhere in Luzerne, I believe. And then when they bought their first big building and then added on to it, that was probably around 1961, 62. That was crafted all, all under the name craft associates. And, um, yeah, they had 1,600 employees and three chefs. And, and then 1972, maybe 74, I've forgotten, they sold to the Lane Company, uh, which was located in Virginia and didn't have a contemporary furniture division. So they were trying to acquire a contemporary company. And that was all well and good, but um, Dad just didn't enjoy working in that corporate atmosphere. He he spent more time on the loading dock packing boxes because he said it was no good if I design it. It doesn't get there in one piece. Absolutely. So, uh, that really wasn't his thing to be, you know, in a suit doing things like that. And so as soon as his no compete clause was over, he uh, he started with a, a neighborhood um, friend of ours uh, whose name was John Graham. And John said, I want to get into the furniture business. Can you help me? And Dad said, boy, can I help you? <laughs> I would love to help you. And uh, that's when they started Comfort Designs, and that went on for another 20 or 20-some years. Yeah. yeah, he seemed very hands-on, like, throughout his entire career, even. I mean, even as the draftsman of it in um, the original company and then switching over. He, he is, um, hands-on is the right thing. You know, he didn't, you know, people say, do you have his drawings? You know, do you have his scale drawings, the things, you know, he designed? They don't exist. He, he would draw them on the back of a napkin oh. and, or a sheet of notebook paper, then go out into the factory. And he had a, a guy that was pretty talented in interpreting what he wanted to do. And they would put it together, foam it, and then, you know, put fabric on it. Dad would sit in and said, no, it doesn't sit right. Rip it all apart. Do it again and again and again until they got it right. There, there were no, I mean, he would make drawings later on in his life. You know, because I, he was told that that's what people needed to have, you know, to make things. But um, he had one special guy in the factory that just kind of could have interpret, you know, what he wanted to do. And even at, at Comfort Designs, when um, a lot of our uh, furniture was coming from Honduras, wicker on iron frames, they, they take iron pipe, shape it, and then weave wicker around it. I would go down there with them and it was really frustrating because you'd be there in the morning, they'd have all the pipes made up and then they you know, took hours and hours to weave the wicker on it and he'd sit it and said no nope, not quite right we need to adjust this or take that arm or off but that's how he did things yeah yeah so you were with him through parts of the design that he had um yeah so after i graduated um college i was in the restaurant business um in florida and uh that lasted about four years knew it wasn't going to be the rest something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And there was an opportunity to um, represent Comfort Designs in Florida. So that was, that's what I did for about 15 years, I think. 
and really that was when you have someone like my father it's kind of hard to work right alongside of him but if you can be part of the company and, and help you know in sales or whatever and then that was a great thing for me and we really enjoyed that relationship you said the restaurant business so humbly um i know that you had a pretty big part in it um if you want to talk about that maybe a little bit um <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, this was with my father, sort of. I was in um, a boarding school, which I really wanted to be in a boarding school. It's not like my parents sent me away. I really wanted to go away and meet different people rather than staying in the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton area all my life. <laughs> and uh, at that boarding school, um, I was fortunate enough to have a housemaster that, whose wife loved to cook. She would let me come down and cook in her kitchen. And I said, well, great, this is fine. And then my roommates and I just said, you know, we're, what's cater some faculty parties and see if we can make enough money to go skiing this weekend or something like that. <laughs> so that took off. And and then we all said, you know, let's get together. Maybe we can open a restaurant someplace. And I said, well, who's going to let us open a restaurant for three months during the summer? But my father had found a place at Harvey's Lake that was a ski lodge, but wasn't being used anymore. But it had a kitchen. And he said, you know, I think maybe I can get that a lease for just the summer and see what happens. And uh, that's what we did. And my roommates came down with me and I had some friends from the Harvey's Lake area that also helped me and my sister and brother. And uh, we were able to serve 50 people a night, um, a price fix dinner for $9. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but the best part about that was one of our clients had written to Craig Claiborne of the New York Times, who was the food editor there and said, you ought to come and see these kids. Um, and he obliged, came down and did a full page article about us in the New York Times. That is so awesome. Kind of took me in a different direction for a while. But Absolutely. But no restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, just the experience of seeing the business aspect of things. And, and like you said, you had that fixed rate of the $9 dinner and then you guys made it work. <laughs> That's so great. So that. I'm sure that affected you um, with where you are now. Do you want to talk a little bit about where you are now? So after living in Florida for 20 years, um, with both sets of parents, my wife's parents and my our parents were both in Booksbury, and uh, we wanted to be closer to them as they aged and eventually passed on. Um, but we live in New Hope, Pennsylvania, um, which is not Booksbury, but close enough to, <laughs> um, you know, stay in contact my wife's parents are still living they're 95 and 96 living at home <laughs> and uh that was the main reason for coming back here but um we love new hope made lots of good friends and um kind of unusual to move from florida back north um but we don't miss it we like we like being here a lot yeah 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 so um we do know that there was um a childhood home that your dad had set up for you guys um, in Pennsylvania. And I think we even had a class that was able to experience it, um, I think in 2012 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about maybe even, I don't know if you were old enough to experience the actual build of that or the creation? It was. Um, it, we had lived in a, a relatively small cape on Denison Street in 44, and um, there was a piece of land just up the street. Um, that dad was able to buy. And I think it was maybe an acre, an acre and a half or something like that. And uh, Russell Eye Construction was the builder. And 
dad along with he um, did the art you know the drawings and everything and it was um dad was a a, a student not in per se but he loved frank lloyd wright and um and one floor homes with a, a lot of what they call bringing the outside in. So we had atriums in the middle of the house. We actually had a stream running through the middle of the house. Oh my gosh. Um, but it was all one story. The ceilings were only eight feet tall because Frank Lloyd Wright was a small man and mm-hmm. um, he liked the idea of feeling tall in his own house, <laughs> even though he wasn't. <laughs> you know, so, um, and he also liked the idea of entering a low ceiling room into a high ceiling room because you go kind of go through this tunnel, not a tunnel, but from one room to the next, from a small expanse to a huge expanse with really not being a huge expanse. It's just, you know, one foot taller makes it a huge expanse. Um, and uh, there was a lot of uh, stone in his interiors, large field stones. And my father went up to uh, Montrose, Pennsylvania and handpicked every stone that went into the interior of the house. So uh, at the entrance, we had these giant boulders that were placed on top of each other and into the wall and all throughout the house. Uh, Oh, that's so exciting. It's really interesting, too, that you said Frank Lloyd Wright, because that was the first name that popped into my head when you said the napkin scribbles, because that was (laughs) he had so (laughs) many ideas that he just had to get them out in some way. And it was funny that, you know, your dad kind of had that same sort of process in the beginning. (laughs) Yep. But um, I remember walking through the house when it was all framed and everyone was telling me I didn't I didn't really understand the the size of the house. And I, I thought, well, my bedroom's kind of small, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> it was designed um, one around the kitchen. Um, we all like to cook. And uh, the other thing that was designed around was an ice cream bar. We had our own um, soda fountain. And it was the kind that you would find in a restaurant. So it had um, an area to put six of those big containers of ice cream in. We had chocolate, we had marshmallow, we had peanuts, we had uh, fizzy water and everything. And next to that was a round fireplace um, that the kind of you see in Sweden, sometimes in Danish design. And uh, dad had invented the beanbag chair and we had six beanbags all around the fireplace, and virtually every night you could find us after dinner eating ice cream around the, <laughs> the fire. That's so great. How we managed to keep the weight off, but you know, my <laughs> way up. <laughs> That's so great. And then you did mention the beanbag chair, so that brings us back to um, now. Was that under comfort design or? And there's a funny story about that. I. I a lot of people will attribute the beanbag chair to my parent, my my father, but it was actually something he had seen in Italy, uh, in a slightly different form. It was more of a a larger piece that was like a sofa, something like a something you would lie on, and um, he he loved that idea and brought it back and and tried to make it smaller, and um, in the furniture world when you are designing something you want to bring it to the mass market, you go to a, a, a furniture show for dealers. And typically that over the years has been in High Point, North Carolina. There's one in Milan, there's one in High Point, North Carolina, sometimes in Los Angeles or Dallas or San Francisco. But the major market is in, in High Point, North Carolina. And he had put this thing together 
and it was so avant-garde that he was afraid afraid you know that maybe he might embarrass himself but he he did it anyway and my uncle who was his partner um they drove to the airport just before the high point market to fly down to high point and dad had the beanbag in the back of the car to take with him and uh my uncle looked at him and he says what's that in the back and he says oh that's my beanbag chair he said adrian you're not taking that to market are you and he said yes i am he said no you're not that you will embarrass us I, that's stupid <laughs> and my father said no i feel very strong he says adrian please don't do that and he, this was the business partner speaking so dad says go in and, and get the tickets for the plane i'll be in in a minute i give the bags to the guy and uh he handed the guy some money and he said make sure this gets on the plane <laughs> they got on the plane my uncle's looking out the window and he sees the porter putting this on on the luggage thing that goes up to the plane and he says adrian you didn't i can't believe you did that and dad said i want to take it so they got to high point they go to the showroom and uh, my uncle sees it on the floor and he says adrian please just put it out back i don't want it out there but the next morning, my dad got up about four in the morning, went down to the showroom, put it out on the showroom floor. And it was all glassed in with windows so people could walk up and down the halls to see without coming in. And there was a line when he got there because people wanted to come in and buy that beanbag chair. <laughs> no way. Oh, my God. I'm not sure who it was to, but it was for a truckload of beanbags. <laughs> that's amazing. I think that's a huge part of his career, too, is just pushing for the designs that he knew, like, you, like a good designer can just feel it when that's there's some interest there right another one was the uh the waterbed the waterbed had been invented um, but it was being used in hospitals for burn victims and uh to make you know take the pressure off of their burn areas and his uh representative in in los angeles uh said you know adrian i think you had to look at this maybe you could put this into a design and dad was right on top of it and um <laughs> uh, it was called i think it was called pleasure island <laughs> uh, but it was a a frame that encompassed the waterbed it had a tv and stereo at the foot of it and everything and they saw, i mean that was really the first residential waterbed not oh that he invented it, but he adapted it. Yeah. yeah, it seems like he was really great with, um, I guess, bringing things like more to an accessible group. Um, because at market, you have like these buyers that are, we had the opportunity to go to market, I should preface. Yeah, um, uh, like this past market, it was really recently. Um, yeah. And you see all of these buyers and, um, you know, it's not like something that he could have had at Macy's, you know, like that, those are, they could be there, but you know, it's amazing that he was able to bring those designs from the high end side to an everyday use. And and he gets, um, I, you know, you read various forums about, in, in this case, about my father, and some people are like naysayers or whatever. But he really did take the high end design and made it affordable to the masses, and that's that's what it was all. I think that's why it was successful because more people yeah. could buy. Absolutely. And it was, it was still in such a unique way. Like you see his pieces and it's still things that, you know, an average designer just would not think of. <laughs> um, and then, so I do want to talk a little bit about his pieces. Maybe if there's, I don't know if you have like a favorite other than the beanbag chair, that is super cool. <laughs> I do. Um, and 
unfortunately now it's so expensive to buy stuff. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've been fortunate. We have an auction house here in Lambertville, New Jersey, um, that will occasionally um, people will drop off furniture there that they think there's something special about it, but they weren't sure what it was. And in the beginning, I don't think they knew what it was either. So I was able to get a few pieces, you know, at relatively good prices. And there are, it, you can, if you get on eBay or some of the others, you'll see a lot attributed to him. Unfortunately, a lot of it is misattributed to him. But occasionally you can find a piece, wow, I, I can get that. I can afford that. And I have about three of those. Um, my kids all have a couple of pieces. And I've had some friends that have given me some pieces, you know, that worked for my father and said, I think you should have this. So that's great. That's amazing. Um, but the, the early things that he did in Walnut with long sloping legs and very low seating. I mean, I can barely get into them now. They're just too low. <laughs> it hurts. But they're they're pretty to look at. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are um, like statement pieces. So. I, we can talk a little bit maybe about the material that he used. So you mentioned the metal um, for the napkin holders. That was the origin. <laughs> and then um, I know that he worked a little bit with wood and um, quite a bit I with textiles. Walnut. That was the, in the fifth, late 50s and early 60s. It was all about walnut um, accents, like the front of the sofa or you know, like a frame or a gondola sofa that appeared to be hand carved it wasn't you know, it was cut on a side and you know, polished nicely and everything but it was all all in walnut um and so when people send me pictures of things that they think are designed by my father the first question is what's the wood on it or i can tell you know it, walnut has a very closed grain it will take a shine nicely and then you know someone will send me something that's in uh i don't know another wood or pine or something i said no <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um, one of his signature things was in in the support system was um, the webbing they used uh, like a interlacing uh, straps that were the support. There were no springs in his seats. There were you know, so that was something new, and and the reason it was he used it is it enabled him to make very strange shapes that wouldn't accommodate springs. You know, strings right. springs are boxed and right. straps. You can put straps anywhere. Yeah, pretty much. So that gave him the ability to create these shapes that you wouldn't normally see. Yeah, and you see a lot of that, even like um, in his so sofas, especially um, like the, I guess the shape of it, I would have never, I never, I've never seen anything like the, that the, it's like a, a nice long sofa and then it just looks comfortable. Like you want yeah. to experience it, but it's still beautiful. It's not his final test if he if it wasn't comfortable for, i don't know if that was on early on but certainly you know at comfort designs that was all if he didn't like sitting in it he wasn't going to make it because probably no one else would like it. <laughs> right like there's beautiful there's some beautiful pieces but you would never want to actually which <laughs> seem to have caught on in this world because i go shopping occasionally for furniture and there's a lot of uncomfortable furniture yeah. Oh, yeah. but not very comfortable <laughs> right, right. Between craft and comfort furniture, um, was there any, I guess, noticeable differences aesthetically and design-wise? Um, I would say at craft, it was largely, um, there were other people that contributed to designs. In the, in the furniture industry, there are a lot of unnamed people who are behind the designs and um, just kind of like, 
a lot of businesses. You you don't really know who, but his name is on the company, so it's his. Um, and they get paid well, but they don't get the name recognition. I would say at um, Comfort Designs, there were more of those contributors than there were in the craft period. He just, my father would say sometimes, I don't have any more ideas, you know, but there were other people out there who had ideas and, and really good ones. And then they would uh, collaborate and get it, you know, make something. But yeah, there definitely at Comfort Designs, we had uh, at least uh, half a dozen people who regularly contributed to, to the designs there. Yeah. All good ones. Uh, yeah. And all my father's. Yeah. So it was, you know, no, everyone got along. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's definitely important in a collaborative work. Um, it's amazing too, because we get to even experience it as students here. I mean, I don't know if you can tell behind me, but everything is like an open layout. You can. Great. I was wondering if that was fake pictures or if it was real. No, it's real. Oh no, it's the real deal. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, understanding that collaborative work and figuring out, you know, how can we incorporate that into our project? Even if it is an individual project, you know, somebody else could have amazing advice and we could work all together to figure out an even more successful design. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great. Um, so I would like to talk about maybe just, I, I'm curious to know if did your father's career and the path that he took in design did that affect your career path at all dad always said if you can do it never work for anyone but yourself and um that took hold in all three my brother and sister my sister's a doctor i've always i I'm not sure if I'm bragging about this or not, but I only in my summer jobs have I been employed by someone other than myself. Um, and even now I'm, I'm a full-time realtor uh, in New Hope. I love what I'm doing and, uh, you know, I call my own shots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my brother owned his, still owns his own company called uh, Performance Research, which is a marketing company for sports. Um, basically, they validate uh, advertising for big companies like the NCAA or NFL football and, and tell oh, wow. them how their advertising is doing. But he started that company back when there wasn't a company that did that. So we've all thing. I've done more of them. I've done restaurants. I've done the real estate. I have done furniture. <laughs> and even as a rep working for my father, that was an independent contractor. You know, I, I sold other lines besides his as well. Yeah, so. Oh, wow. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I thought, um, I thought that the main focus was, you know, on your father's work. Well, the main focus was there, but <laughs> I wanted the. Um, I always wanted the design, but I I can't draw anything. In fact, my father I drew something for my father once, and I said, "What do you think of this?" And he said, "I think you ought to go get art lessons." <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, he helped me start a lamp company, and it was called Jim Pierce All Lamps, and um, basically it was Florida type lamps like you know palm trees or whatever but i i just i'd like to do more things than i have time for and i gave that about 10 years and i said i can't do this anymore and we just kind of let that go but we try all sorts of things we love doing that yeah i think that um i feel like that shows a huge part in like um you know your relationship with him and, and you both as people is that you're just kind of like i don't know finding opportunities everywhere and figuring it out <laughs> i mean even it with the restaurant <laughs> 
it's it's hard when you have someone like my father to you know kind of work alongside of them it's it's you know we each have our own thing we want to prove ourselves uh and not interfere um but i remember there was one time at the restaurant toward the end end of the time when we had the restaurant and i um, developed on labor day saturday or whatever it was that the last weekend of the summer and i got appendicitis and i had to go to the hospital but i had a hundred and some people coming for dinner that night at the restaurant and I called my dad and I said, look, there's people here that know what to do, but I need someone over them. <laughs> you know, right. could you come over here and just do that? So my mom took me to the hospital and my dad stayed at the restaurant and he came to the hospital that night or the next morning and said, I don't know how you do it, but I got it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I think I did a terrible job, <laughs> which was nice. You know, we each admire each other for what they're capable of doing and we all have different things that we do yeah i think that it's great that you can see you know like you can see your differences and where your strong suits are within each other but then you can also see like a parallel of both of your work ethics and even i mean with what you've said about your siblings as well it's just it's wild and amazing to hear um all of those journeys and how they kind of run parallel and you can help each other and work off of each other it's amazing thank you yeah and then you did mention, so you have a lot of people that um, ask you if um, work was your father's. So um, is that, do, do you get that often where? I do. Uh, and when dad passed, um, it was kind of like a resurgence. Well, Adrian Pearsall died and then all these articles came about what he did and didn't design. And people began wondering, do I own an Adrian Pearsall piece? And then there were people who were not quite so scrupulous and said, here's an original Adrian Pearsall design. And um, I wasn't internet savvy at that time. And uh, all of a sudden there's this website called craftassociates.com. And I said, well, how's that possible? Well, it's possible because you, you sign up on the internet, go to GoDaddy and your craftassociates.com and they're making furniture. And uh, we had a problem with that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, and my brother um, contacted a lawyer and she said, basically, uh, they can't do that, but it's going to be really hard to stop them. And the only way to stop them is to establish yourselves as the authority. And even though you don't have the name anymore, um, you do have Adrian Pearsall. He's your father. And what you need to do is say, basically, this is his design or this is not his design or this was designed by someone in his company or this was not designed. And the the replicas that were coming out were so good and people were making money off of it. We just didn't think that that was right. So um, I started at the urging of the attorney and this is kind of something that you have to do for 10 years, you know, to be yeah. and we're at the end of that 10 year period um, where um, they'll send me pictures and saying, hey, we think we have an Adrian Pearsall piece. And I get to say, no, or yeah, you really do. And and then I document that because I have all the catalogs from his company. And, um, you know, I can give them a time frame when it was made. And um, and I get to charge them for it. <laughs> right. Not much, but it, it helps differentiate, you know, the, the wannabes from the real thing. And right. I, I don't like people paying $5,000 for a sofa that really my father did not design or yeah. someone else made. 
Um, and so that's where we are. And that's actually helped us because now we've been able to license some things to um, some retailers like Restoration Hardware is doing very well with some of the designs that my father originally did. And they give him credit for it. Oh, wow. Could be. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel like it's just amazing that you guys are still, um, you know, on top of that and making sure that his designs don't go unnoticed as his designs and other ones, you know, can they're admired as what they are, but they're not his. One of the, one of the most fun things about doing that is I I get to see pieces that are very old that you know people have said is this real? And I say, oh, not only is it real, I haven't seen one of these in forty years, and it's rare. Um, and I hear lots of good stories. There was um, someone that called me five or six years ago and said, I think I have an Adrian Pearsall piece. You know, could you tell me and it was a chair that I just happened to love and I knew was made when I was very young before my father even had a factory. It was made in the basement of his duplex. And I said, I think I was probably about six months old when my dad made that. And uh, he said, well, um, my father was a pilot in the Navy and he took this with him everywhere he went around the world three times on all of his posts. He was a career Navy person. And he said, how much is it worth? And I said, you know, I, I really don't know because I don't like to get into that. I don't want to create a market that's not there. And it's, right. it's, it's not up to me. Um, he said, but I think we would like it to go back to the Pearsall family if you'd like to have it. And I said, how much would you like? And he said, whatever you want to give me, you know. And so we drove down to Virginia the same day to go get the chair. And it's upstairs in the living room. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's pretty special. Yeah, that's so amazing. It's it's wild how much a piece can really have a story, and not just before its life, but during the entire situation that it's there. And then, I mean, him being a pilot in the Navy and maybe even having, you know, some <laughs> kind of connection. It's just, it's so amazing. I, like, as a designer, that's so exciting. That's really what you want your pieces to be able to do. So, um how did we get from designing the furniture, having all of these ideas, to actually making it happen and, and selling these pieces? Well, that, I would say that Dad was not a salesman. He, he liked to design furniture, and he was pretty shy. Um, but my mom and her brothers had said, Adrian, you need to go out and sell this furniture if you want to make a living. And so they, they bought a small trailer. And my mom would call on the phone and make appointments with the buyers at Wanamaker's and Macy's and a few of the other big stores down in Philadelphia, which was the closest to Wilkesbury. That would be the closest market. And um, I, I remember they did have an, a, an appointment, I believe it was at Wanamaker's. And um, my mom went up to the executive offices and said, we're here with the furniture. And he said, we'll bring it in. She said, well, no, it's in the trailer down on, on the street. And he said, I don't go down to the street to look at furniture and which was not a good beginning and he wouldn't come down and and he said actually I don't really need any furniture and my mom said well what do you need he said quite frankly what I'm looking for wasn't napkin rings it was napkins and um, my mom being a sewer said well I can make you napkins he said you can and she said yes and and he said, well, I need like 500 or 1,000. I don't know what it was. And um, she 
said, well, let me go down and ask my husband. So she went down to the car. He said, well, I guess we could make those, you know, <laughs> and he put together some numbers and, and she went back up and said, yeah, I think we can do it for whether it was 50 cents or a piece or a dollar a piece. I don't know what it was. And he gave him an order right there on the spot. And uh, so they went out to celebrate for dinner after the meeting and um, they sat down and figured that they were going to make nothing. <laughs> they added up all the numbers and then how many that he was expecting and dad didn't really know his cost or whatever and when they added it all up they were going to lose money on the order but at least they had a contact there and that relationship developed uh, between the buyer and my parents and and eventually they started buying truckloads of furniture <laughs> but um it, it it's interesting you know in my career as a as a manufacturer's rep with my father um there was a lot of demand for his stuff already so it was a pretty easy job for me, but occasionally I would meet people who knew nothing about the line, and I loved being able to say, look, here's something that will help your store make money, and they would call me a year later and saying, you know, you were right about that. What else do you have to sell me? So it's very gratifying to do things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've learned a lot, um, especially being at market and experiencing the buyer and seller um, relationship is that communication and connections that you make are so important throughout this entire design process and even really any career that you're in. I mean, I'm sure you see it in real estate consistently, just those connections that you're making. Yeah, it, it's funny because there really is a necessity for the, the representative group between the manufacturer and the buyer um, because manufacturers don't really relate. You know, they do what they want to do. And they're happy as someone is wants to buy it. Someone has in 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 between kind of finesse that. You know, my father would run when he saw a buyer coming. He said, "Oh, they just talk too much. I don't want to." <laughs> <laughs> That's so great, especially because you see his process and and just in our conversation, you can kind of see the way his mind works, and that's definitely how you'd imagine it. And buyers had a habit of saying, "Well," and I get it. And buyers would say could you take that arm off? I think it would look better without that arm or something like that. And my father would go, no. But the rep would say, look, here's a potential to make a million dollars. Take the arm off. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a meeting would come to mind. I, and that, that was particularly evident in, in strong markets like New York or Miami or San Francisco. People that live in San Francisco live back in those days in fairly traditional homes, large but traditional. In New York, small homes but they have a lot of money to spend and in florida you know what do they want with the wool covering on a sofa they need you know silks right so this is where the manufacturers reps really came into play and just you know getting the right piece for the right markets that would make them money and rather than the one you know very strict view of what my father had designed and um fabric selection um, became a very, very important for me as a rep um, in Florida. Such different tastes in Florida than there are in northeastern Pennsylvania or New York City. And size was another thing. Um, in the beginning, Dad really struggled because his pieces were large and they wouldn't fit on the elevators going up to those apartments. So they had to start designing them in pieces rather than one large piece. And kind of that was the start of modular furniture. <laughs> yeah. It's so amazing to see that he was a part of all of that. Like I'm I'm trying to imagine, you know, the process and, and time wise where he was at in all of this design and 
the fact that he had such a huge part in so many unique pieces um, and the foundation of them is amazing. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about the fabrics because I know that um, he played with textiles a little bit and upholstery. And I feel like, so you explained, you know, how it got to where it ended up being depending on the, the place that it was needed in. But how did he start with those decisions? Um, basically, just like the furniture market, there was a fabric market. Uh, I don't know where it is now, but it was mostly in Dallas, Texas, um, during a furniture market. And uh, the furniture market, I'm not sure if it still is, was twice twice a year, October and April. And there would always, in addition to new designs, there would be new fabrics. And those were selected at the Dallas market. And there may, my father and later I would accompany him, would sit in, the, in our showroom and a guy would come in with suitcases full of different fabrics you know some that were velvets that wouldn't apply to us or anything and finally you'd see something say that's it and you know, like send it or at least send us that we'll put it on a piece and see how it looks and this would happen with a hundred different suppliers but you have to whittle that down it would be hard to introduce more than 30 fabrics and then the color variations of each of those patterns which there could be 10 you know red blue green white if it was a solid and um that's a lot of inventory to bring in only to find out that someone white doesn't sell you know but white right. in florida so that it, it it's a very um it wasn't his favorite thing to do um particularly because there was so much vying for attention from the new york rep to the florida rep to the you know adrian you have to bring this in well I don't like it you know but, well that's our market <laughs> yeah so um that was hard for him but he did it and he listened and he had a great sales manager you know um, ray kresge who lived in wilkes pennsylvania has passed on um he ray was really good about identifying each of the markets and saying you know we need a certain number of fabrics to to work in that area and we need these fabrics to work there so there were a lot of Everyone in both of his companies, whatever their positions, contributed in a way for the whole, you know, and, and they were all good people, all really excellent people. Yeah, it's funny. You can see, you know, like the, the links in each part, you know, you have like the designer, the representative, you know, the buyer, the seller. And it's just it's so great to see everything coming together. And it's funny because I feel like we we hear these conversations um, often in school and it's just like bridging those gaps and understanding you know like sometimes you do have to adapt and even though it wasn't his favorite thing to do <laughs> he still did it he still made it work <laughs> and, and like anything in retail you know if you have a good salesman on the floor and you walk into a store and you see a dress that you like and, and the salesman comes over and says, if you like that you really like this I mean I wouldn't have got sold without that salesman probably right or it would have taken a lot longer, you know, but, and, and, and I appreciate, you know, when I have a, a good server in a restaurant or something, I, they make the meal. I mean, the food was great, but they make the meal. Right. So you, you need all of those people to make it a successful company. Absolutely. At my summer job, I am a server and I, you get so many people that say that. And I guess now, like just being a part of it in the same way that, you know, you were a part of um, like the restaurant business and, and, really any kind of business is just like, that's a huge part of it. It's like being the seller or being in, in a point where even as designers, like we are in a way still the seller, we have to still be, you know, conscientious of 
how you're speaking to people and those connections that you make with those people, even if they're momentary connections. So our, our question um, on a student's perspective to wrap up interviews, we normally ask, um, so would you give yourself, um, like if you could go back in time, would you give your student self um, a little piece of advice or you can do it from your father's perspective if you'd like, you could do it from just advice to us as students. Um, it's completely up to you, but um, I'll just ask it in a... Not keen on taking my father's advice at that age, but um, that's okay. So I'll uh, so we'll okay. So we'll go into <laughs> no. I, I I can say that um, find something that you really like doing, and and get other people excited about it. Let let them see your enthusiasm for it. Let let your enthusiasm be contagious, and if you do things the way that you want them done, and get people to do them the way you want it done and it becomes successful, then you, you've got the right formula. Um, I know in the restaurant business, um, my mother had just, you know, when I was a kid, I traveled with them a lot. I actually didn't pass the first grade because I was traveling more than <laughs> I was going to furniture shows with my parents. My mom would take me to Neiman Marcus for fashion shows or whatever during the day. Um, but she was really big on good service, whether it was in a restaurant or any service oriented industry. And when I opened my restaurant, I, before you know, I ever opened the restaurants, I would sit down with the servers and say, look, you are, I don't get to go out and meet these people. You are my connection to making this successful. And we have to do everything to make their time here because they're spending their money here as enjoyable as possible. Um, and that comes from setting the silverware right to making sure there's no dirty glasses on the table to make sure that their water glass is never empty. Um, those are all things that you can do and do well. And it's not that hard, you know, but once you've got it down, you will always be an excellent server. And um, you will be hired by any restaurant that cares about excellent service. And I was fortunate enough to have that meeting with my future wife <laughs> and uh, so, not that we do any serving anymore, but, you know, I, I think she always reminds me, she says, I remember sitting down with you and telling me, you know, that I could get a job anywhere after working here. And um, she really appreciated that. Yeah, that's so amazing. Thank you so much, Jim. You're welcome. It was my Wonderful pleasure. conversation. <laughs> um, so when, do you, uh, when do you graduate? Okay, so I'm graduating technically um, next. So next year will be my last year, um, but I am looking into graduates. So whether that be here or at a different school, depending on where I end up, I'm going to Italy next semester to study abroad. Uh -huh. Yeah, so Great. very exciting. So I might end up there. We'll see. <laughs> I went to the Milan Furniture Fair once, and that was an incredible experience. And you'll see contemporary like you've never seen before there. Uh, and that's actually where I got my inspiration to do lamps. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's I, I just feel like traveling in general is just a huge form of inspiration. And I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of it with design. Great. <laughs> yeah. Great. Jim, is there anywhere we can find your dad's work, whether it be online or um, over any kind of social media, just to see um, his pieces and experience them for new viewers? 
there there are several um, antique road shows where you know, his furniture appears. Um, well, I owned it for quite a few years before I realized I saw it in a design magazine. I'm a designer. It's a Vladimir Kagan, mid-century. More than anything, this table and tables like this have come to be the emblem of mid-century modern. Mid-century modern has become this buzzword and also sometimes referred to as the atomic age. This yeah. kind of kidney bean-shaped glass top, an asymmetrical base yeah. uh, with these kind of soaring cantilevered arms are very emblematic of the entire period. I've got some good news and some bad news. Okay. First, the bad news. Uh, the bad news is this is not by Vladimir Kagan. Oh, wow. Although I showed a table like this to Vladimir Kagan a few years ago, and ever the gentleman, he said, it's not by me, but I wish it was. <gasps> wow. Which is high praise. Kagan's work was handcrafted and sold in small numbers. Uh -huh. This table was designed by Adrian Pearsall, for a company called Kraft Associates. Oh. Uh, and for every one Kagan table that you see out there, there's probably 150 of these. Oh. Uh, and I think what Vladimir Kagan was saying to me was that he wished he had designed it because it was much more successful. And if anything, this table sort of out-Kaganed Kagan. Wow. Uh, and Adrian Pearsall was a great designer in his own right. Huh. He was a contemporary of Vladimir Kagan. He started this company in 1952 and was taking elements of different designers and he had an uncanny knack for what the market wanted and what would sell. When it was originally designed, it was such a bestseller for the company that he put it on his letterhead. So on his letterhead where it says, yeah. Craft Associates from the desk of Adrian Pearsall on his letterhead, there's a little small logo in the corner of this table. Now, the good news is, that Adrian Pearsall's work is becoming very popular, and there's a lot of collectors who are just starting to seek it out. So it's on the rise, it's going up in value. Kraft Associates was producing this type of table between the mid-1950s and the mid-1960s. This example is in fantastic condition. Uh, the solid walnut base is nicely oiled, hasn't been refinished or repainted, really is a great survivor. How have you used it all these years? I have used it in my own house. I found it in a thrift shop in the 80s. I saw the base, the glass was sitting over to the side, and I said, oh, I'll take the glass too. I think it was $25 or $20, I think. Oh, that's great. Do you have any idea of, uh, of its value? No, because I took it to a store once here in Palm Springs, and he thought it was a Kagan, and he looked it up online and he thought 1600 at the time, that was a few years ago. Several of these have shown up recently at uh, well-publicized mid-century modern auctions, and they tend to sell between $900 and $1,200 at auction. Okay. Uh, retail, if you went to any of these uh, shops uh, that specialize in this period, you can easily see them priced at about $1,600 retail. My website, uh, you know, for a little history of my dad and some other links from other companies. So Jim, thank you so much for joining us and thank you everybody for watching. Um, just give us, you know, like a, a like, a little comment, um, maybe even share it if you'd like. And don't forget to join us next time on A Student's Perspective. We hope you like this discussion with the design industry from a student's perspective. Please like, share, and comment, and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations to come.